We began this series on understanding church with the argument that a church is not a building, or a group, or a community of belief, or a society of moral excellence. It may have a building and people and beliefs and a moral vision, but at its core, a church is a mission, a mission of mercy, both declaring God's mercy and embodying mercy in our lives and our neighborhoods. And that kind of mission requires faith, that is, courage, boldness, chutzpah. It often takes the form of praise, of finding the good and praising it, and it also takes the form of justice, of finding the broken, the unfair, the unhealthy, and repairing it. The church is mercy, faith, praise, and justice. But what does all this look like? on the ground, in practice. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Let's start with a fully human being, a mature, radiant, kind, fully human being. Picture someone who, in your opinion, fits this description. Someone you know and love and admire. Someone you'd nominate for the Oscar for best human, you know? Maybe not the best, but one of the best. Got someone in mind? I'm willing to bet that that person, most of the time, acts with compassion and grace. They don't tend to hold grudges. They often look out for others, lending a hand, keeping in mind people who are typically overlooked. They are merciful, right? And by the same token, I'm willing to bet they're often courageous. It might be a quiet kind of courage, poised, grounded, or it might be an adventurous kind of courage, willing to take a wise risk, to do what needs to be done in order to do the right thing. I bet the person's pretty positive, too, at least a lot of the time, finding the good and praising it, quick to give credit to others and to appreciate the world around them. At the same time, this person probably sees pretty clearly that the world stands in need of some significant renovation, that there are plenty of broken places and broken hearts that need mending, repair, justice. When I was growing up, my mother once gave me a quote on a slip of paper that I ended up putting on my mirror in my bedroom, a few lines from the beloved writer E.B. White, the author of Charlotte's Web, as it happens, and also a distinguished essayist. Here's the quote, if the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve or save the world and a desire to enjoy or savor the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. My guess is that person you're thinking of, your nominee for best human, does a relatively decent job of planning the day, striking a graceful balance between improving the world and enjoying the world saving and savoring. And when it comes right down to it, that's what the church looks like in practice. From this angle, the question really isn't 
what is the church as much as what is the church for? And the answer is, well, saving and savoring, yes, but more to the point, what the church is for is helping to create and support and empower people like the person you're imagining. Merciful, courageous, appreciative, and just. Little by little, saving and savoring the world. And not just individuals, communities too, whole neighborhoods that have these qualities. But how do you do that? Well, for one, no one can do it alone. We need company. We need fellow travelers, companions along the way to help us plan the day. Pope Francis pictures the church as a kind of field hospital, where we take care of each other as companions. Many Protestant thinkers, among others, have pictured the church as a kind of school, where we students learn alongside each other as companions. And here's a third image. Some of the earliest Christian thinkers borrowed terms from the world of athletics to describe Christian life as a life of training, of developing muscles, spiritual muscles, strength and flexibility. And so we can also think of the church as a kind of gymnasium where we train and grow as companions. And so whether we imagine the church as a field hospital, a school, a gymnasium, or indeed all three, the mission of the church is a group exercise. We need support. We need advice. We need critique. We need models. We need encouragement, inspiration, sparring partners, challenges, collaborators. We need friends. And so the church, because of its mission, takes the form of a group gathering in a home, or if it gets too big for a home, in a building. And it gathers not just a few times a year, if you really want to heal or learn or get into shape. The gathering needs to be regular and frequent. It needs to be weekly or a couple of times a week. I mean, this stuff isn't easy, right? Improving and enjoying, saving and savoring, it makes it hard to plan the day. And those gatherings, well, at their best, they're designed and organized accordingly. Sermons and prayers and testimonies should circle around the church's mission of mercy. That could mean actually purveying mercy. Many churches are connected with or even run ministries like health clinics and job training or welcoming refugees and on and on and on. But it can also mean supporting other organizations nearby who are doing the purveying, lifting up those organizations and praising them. And at the same time, it can also mean learning about how to become more merciful in our daily lives, in our homes and families and in all our relationships. This kind of merciful work requires courage, faith, a kind of boldness, as Jesus typically defines it. And so church services and meetings are properly devoted to building up our bravery, even our audacity, identifying what's holding us back, helping us take the next daring step with imagination and chutzpah. Not recklessness, of course, but also not complacency or timid half-measures and here again, we need companions to help us know the difference, to help us decide when to turn it up a notch and when to reel it in a bit.
Here at SALT Project, one of the things we do is we make films and other kinds of resources. And there's something you may have heard of called a mastermind group, which basically is a group of people in a similar industry, like filmmaking, for example, who meet regularly and share ideas, best practices, troubleshooting, you know, how do you deal with this problem, or how do you fully take advantage of this success? You can think of a congregation in a similar way, as a kind of mastermind group, a supportive, action-oriented workshop for people who long to be more merciful and brave, which is to say, more loving and faithful. Or, to shift the metaphor, it's almost like a huddle on a playing field. The team gathers, that's true, but not for the sake of gathering, but rather for the sake of being sent out onto the field after the huddle, you know, to play the game, to act, to get involved, to be merciful and courageous and appreciative and just. In the huddle, we ask each other, how can we bring more of God's mercy into the world? What issues of justice are alive in our neighborhood and how can we effectively engage? What good work is already happening and how can we lift it up and praise it? Where do we need to be more courageous, more inventive, more bold? And by the way, this is where the Bible comes in, as a central instrument for helping us wrestle with these key questions. The Bible is a means, not an end, a library of stories and songs and wisdom around which the church huddles and reflects and learns and strengthens and grows for the sake of being sent out into the field. That's the ideal anyway, it doesn't always happen, but it sometimes does. And even when it doesn't, it could. God knows we all have room for improvement. In fact, in each of these key areas, mercy, faith, praise, and justice, there are constantly ways to improve and also serious pitfalls to watch out for. Take mercy, for example. Mercy can take the form of kindness and respect, but it also can take the form of condescension. Oh, let me save you. Let me come to your rescue, right? Save the world. It can be pretty patronizing and arrogant. It can even take the form of contempt, disguised as mercy. Likewise with faith, you know, oh yeah, look at me, look at us, so courageous, so bold, so faithful, so positive, right? Praising the good and so just, so righteous, saving the world. Oh yeah, look out. All this is ready-made for self-righteousness, for essentially praising ourselves, for pride, looking down on everybody else. This is a permanent temptation for the church at every turn mercy, faith, praise, justice, the pitfall of pride is right there, just inviting us to step right in. And so when it comes to the church, there's one last clue Jesus has for us, one more bit of essential wisdom without which even mercy and faith and praise and justice get twisted around into their opposites. What is this essential ingredient in the recipe? Well, 
Jesus borrows it, as he often does, from the Hebrew prophets. Think of the prophet Micah, for example, who says that what God wants is for us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. That last essential ingredient is humility. One of Jesus' most famous parables on this subject features a Pharisee and a tax collector. So we can be sure to catch Jesus' meaning here. Let's translate Pharisee into a 21st century Christian context by calling him the reverend. So in the parable, the reverend enters a church and prays a prayer of thanksgiving. But it's a grotesque parody of gratitude, ostensibly thanking God, but actually pointing toward his own alleged virtue and religious diligence. He spots the tax collector on the other side of the church and prays, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. Indeed, as the reverend understands himself, he is an excellent upstanding citizen. He needs nothing. And so he arrogantly thanks God for his perfect self-sufficiency, his piety, his righteousness. And the tax collector? He does the opposite. He stands far off, not even daring to look up to heaven, Jesus says. His prayer is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And yet he is the one, Jesus declares, who is justified or approved in the divine court. Jesus sums up the situation this way, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, on one hand, this is Jesus clearly underscoring the importance of humility in human life, and so in the church's life as well. But there's also a hidden trap here, and the experience of reading the parable helps to dramatize it. Here's what I mean. The temptation, and I think most of us are guilty of falling for it, is to read the parable in a way that leaves us looking down on the reverend, even to the point of having contempt for him. Oh, look at this guy, how arrogant he is, how self-congratulatory. Not like us. I mean, we're with Jesus. We're with the tax collector over here, asking God for mercy. And when we do, we're, we're in good shape. I mean, it's right there in the passage. Look at what Jesus says. All who humble themselves will be exalted. So that's us, right? Humble. Exalted. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like this reverend. You see the trap? Even our best efforts to avoid self-congratulation and contempt can themselves so easily, so easily become occasions of, wait for it, self-congratulation and contempt, praising ourselves for our humility and having contempt for those who aren't quite so humble as we are. It turns out that being merciful, genuinely merciful, as a mode of kindness and not of patronizing pride, is hard. It turns out that being faithful, genuinely faithful, as a mode of courage and not of conceit, is hard. It turns out that praising the good and repairing the broken, without at the same time becoming self-righteous and holier than thou, is hard. The traps 
are everywhere. And so we need the Spirit's help and the help of our companions and our neighbors to get better at these things over time. We need partners to keep us honest, to help us see our blind spots. We need models and guardrails and key ideas that can help us avoid counterproductive forms of counterfeit mercy. This is one place our theology, our beliefs, drawn from the Bible and from teachers and thinkers in Christian history, can be indispensable. For example, we can learn from the tax collector in this famous parable that in truth we depend on God as the source of every good gift, including mercy, so that if and when we find ourselves embodying mercy, becoming the church, acting with kindness and care, we can rightly interpret our situation not as an opportunity for pride, but as an opportunity for humble gratitude to God, who gracefully provides us this mercy, the very mercy we're embodying. In this sense, the mission of the church is itself a gift of grace, given over and over and over again. And a gift, of course, can only be received not with entitlement, but with humility. A word that, after all, comes from the same root as the word human. For this good work to become more human, more humane, more merciful and courageous, more appreciative and just, to save and to savor, to improve and enjoy, we need a mastermind group, a supportive, challenging, action-oriented workshop for people who long to be more merciful and brave, more loving and faithful, all for the sake of creation, the whole neighborhood. That's why we take time to huddle up each week, gathering and singing and praying, asking for God's mercy like so many tax collectors, and listening again to Jesus who tells us another story about the people we were born to be, and then sends us out to become those people, little by little, a field hospital, a school, a gymnasium, a workshop, human and humane, by the grace of God, the graceful church, helping each and every one of us to plan the day. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer-Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer-Bolton. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions, Pablo J. Garman, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. This episode concludes our five-part series on understanding church. Our next mini-series will come out just in time for Advent and Christmas. It's based on the work of one of the most beloved and brilliant poets in the English language, the son of a pastor and a creative Christian thinker in his own right. That series will be called The Gospel According to E.E. Cummings. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.